Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. In our passage today, Paul calls people to look at the cross. And he says that depending on where you're standing, you will see it in two different ways. So what I want to do is I want to think about some optical illusions real quick. If you've ever seen the picture of the cup with two faces, you know that you can see either the two black faces looking at each other, or you can see the cup, but you can't see them both at the same time. There's another picture where you may look at it and and see a rabbit looking towards you. And then if you look at it from a slightly different way, you could see a duck. Or if you think about the picture of the old woman looking kind of off towards the left, but if you look at it a little differently, you see a young woman looking to the right. I don't know if uh, maybe you remember a few years ago, a same sort of thing happened in, in social media with the dress. You remember the color of the dress? Uh, people posted this on Facebook. It even made the news and newspaper articles. Uh, but some people said that there's this dress and it looks white and gold. And others said, no, it's actually blue and black. But it was the same dress. It was the same picture. Everyone was looking at the same thing, but they just saw something completely different from one another. One famous talk show host said, from this day forward, the world will be divided into two people, black and blue or white and gold. Now granted, this is a silly, silly example of division that we see in the world. But the idea that two people can look at the exact same thing and to see two completely different things is what Paul has for us today in 1 Corinthians. You see, the Corinthian church was fraught with division. As some said, I follow Paul. And others said, I follow Peter. And some said, I follow Apollos. And Paul is coming to the church and says, yes, there is division in this world, but it ought not to be amongst believers. It's between believers and the world. See, Paul He's trying to get them back on track. What's the dividing line? Well, Paul tells the Christians that the world and the church are divided at the word of the cross. That believers can rest assured that although the cross looks like weakness and foolishness in this world, it is actually the power and the wisdom of God on full display. Christians find unity with one another and utmost confidence in our crucified Lord, Jesus Christ. So as we walk through this passage today, we want to see what the cross is and how our two pictures look. The one on the side for the unbeliever and the one on the other side, how believers see it. So notice the division of the cross. Verse 18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. Now to understand Paul's words here, we have to recognize what the cross represented 
in, G- in Paul's day. See, we may struggle to understand this in our culture because we're used to seeing crosses all over the place. We see them on jewelry. We see them at churches. We see them uh, at funerals. We see them as decorations in our living rooms, as crafts for our kids. It's one of the most famous tattoo drawings that people have on their body is, is this cross. We often think of it as a synonym for Christianity, for Christian values like love, or simple decoration. Because that's what our, what our sterilized view of the cross looks like in our culture. That's what it means for so many people. But for Paul's audience, things would have been incredibly different. See, these words carried a visual and a violent idea to readers. John Stott helps us out in the cross of Christ. He explains that crucifixion seems to have been invented by barbarians on the edge of the known world and taken over by both Greeks and Romans. It is probably the most cruel method of execution ever practiced, for it deliberately delays death until maximum torture has been inflicted. The victim could suffer for days before dying. When the Romans adopted it, they reserved it for criminals convicted of murder, rebellion, or armed robbery, provided that they were also slaves, foreigners, or other non-persons. In this definition, we see that the cross, to Paul's audience, meant death, but far more than just death. It meant torture as the crucified one hung there for days, for, for hours and days. The Romans made sure that death would not come quickly due to loss of blood, but it came slowly through asphyxiation, like suffocating, like a fish out of water, or one's heart going out. That the cross represented humiliation as the crucified hung naked and weak and powerless as they longed for death to come. That it was a punishment, indicating that this person was a murderer, a rebel, or had done something terrible. That it was a status symbol for only the lowest of the lows, non-Roman citizens, could receive crucifixion. These people were nobodies. And that it was highly public. That it was along the sides of roads, so as you walk down the road, there might be crosses on the side of the road. Or they might be up on a hill where everyone could see. The goal was that they were going to dissuade people from being like that. It was a sign to say, look what happens when you rebel against us. Look what happens to worthless people. Don't end up like that. You see, for Greeks and Romans, the cross was a disgusting symbol of a sickening death, of unworthy, worthless For Jews, it was not only a terrifying symbol of hate, injustice, and suffering, but total embarrassment. And even worse, in Deuteronomy, we see that that God says that the one hangs on a tree is cursed of God. So no matter who you were, the cross did not carry anything good in and of itself. It was gross, disgusting, revolting. Not something that you would bring up in polite conversation. And here comes Paul, not just talking about crosses in general, but rather claiming to a message, the gospel, the word of the cross. He 
see, in chapters 1 and 2 of Corinthians, Paul tells the, the Corinthians that, look, when I came to you, I didn't come to you using lofty speech or eloquent wisdom, but instead I preached the power and wisdom of God through Christ crucified. See, Jesus was killed by the very people that He came to save. The crucified Christ was a picture of ultimate humiliation. Jesus was condemned as the worst of sinners. He was in the lowest of social classes. He died publicly, brutally, in total rejection. And under the wrath and curse of God. See, not even Paul could receive this kind of treatment. He was a Roman citizen. Wouldn't receive this kind of treatment. The Corinthians wouldn't have been treated like this. The cross could only... How could this be the power? How could this be the wisdom of God? It doesn't fit into our worldly thinking or any pattern that we could construct. You see, the word of the cross divides mankind in two, placing believers on one side and unbelievers on the other side. The sides are at odds. They're opposed to one another. Either the cross is the weakness and folly that it looks like, or it's the strength and wisdom of God declared by Paul. The cross can only be seen one way or the other. Paul repeated over and over in this passage how the world sees the cross. To them, it's folly, foolishness, it's weakness. No wonder that the gospel that Paul proclaimed would be rejected by the Corinthian culture as insane Ridiculous rantings of a madman. A stumbling block for Jews. And folly for Gentiles. Now we aren't in Corinth and we live in a highly churched area. But we can still see how the world is at odds with the Gospel. I mean, have you ever been told, are you serious? You believe in that religious mumbo-jumbo? It's a fairy tale. Or maybe religion is about teaching how to how teaching how people should act and treat one another, that it's primarily about showing love and taking care of each other and making the world a better place. It's not about a deity, an unknown force over us. Or maybe you've been told being a Christian is naive, empty optimism, but if it works for you, go for it. I know I'm always amazed when I turn on the TV, if I watch shows and TV, uh, just to see what Christians are portrayed like in our culture. I mean, they they look like self-righteous people, judgmental people, people with their heads stuck in the past. That Christianity's precepts get in the way of progress. That they deny scientific advancement and try and keep people stuck in an ancient moralism. Trying to force that into a world that has moved beyond it. I mean, rarely do you ever find a positive, honest representation of a Christian from our shows and movies. It shouldn't be surprising to us that the Corinthians had slipped away from proclaiming the cross of Jesus Christ to their culture because if we're honest, we have the same temptations today as well. It's not fun to be rejected by society. So rather than standing on the word of the cross, it's easy to want to sidestep it. People might say that Christianity has much more to offer than just a bloody symbol of a dying Savior. 
Perhaps people would respond better to a modern church that talks about God's love and desire to bless people. Maybe the church should focus more on feeding the poor, serving the community, teaching people how to treat each other well. Maybe the church should focus more on updating itself and being culturally responsive, modern, maybe even progressive. Perhaps the church should focus on entertainment and professionalism, creating an atmosphere where people would actually want to come. Now, this is not all bad, per se. But Paul reminds us that the church of Jesus Christ is distinct from the world. And rather than trying to defend itself from the criticism of this world by accepting what this world deems influential, she ought to unite definitively on that which separates her from the world, namely, the cross of Jesus Christ. Here is a message that the church in Corinth needed to hear. And it's a message that we need to hear today as well. Notice Paul's tone in the passage. He's not embarrassed. He's not apologetic. He's not concerned that he stands opposed to the world. But he comes out confidently swinging at his opponent. Look at verse 20. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? He's calling out the cultural influencers. The gurus, the religious, the speakers and the debaters, the people that could draw a crowd and could get a following on Facebook and social media. But notice where his confidence comes from. It's not his own wisdom. But in verse 19, he quotes God saying, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now this is found, this is a, a quote from Isaiah chapter 29 in which God is speaking to Jerusalem. And He's calling out their leaders. He's calling out the powerful. He's calling out the wise and the discerning. And then as Isaiah, here's what He says. Because His people draws near with their mouth and honor Me with their lips while their hearts are far from Me, and their fear of Me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I again will do wonderful things with this people. And with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of the wise men shall perish, and the discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. You see, because the wise and the powerful were not leading how they ought, God is calling them out. He will do it Himself. He will do wonderful things, destroying the wisdom of the wise and the discerning. God then diagnoses their problem. In verse 16, He says, You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should, be, should say to its maker, He did not make me. Or the thing formed say to him who formed it, He has no understanding. So the wisdom and power of this world is upside down. Like a pot saying to its potter, You didn't make me. Or a creation of someone looking up and saying, You have no wisdom. So is man in his opposition to God. Because of the fall, the whole world is turned upside down. It's shaken up. In its fallen state, it reaches out for meaning, for purpose, wisdom, and power. But unless it finds its origin, unless it finds its end in God, it will come up short. Now, it's not to say that unbelievers can't be geniuses in their field. 
or that anything secular is immoral, weak, or unwise. That's not what Paul is saying here, and that's not how he means us to take it. No, what Paul is calling believers to recognize is that for all the wisdom and power that this world claims in its religious systems, in its philosophic systems, in its economic, military, or political systems, nothing can provide the ultimate remedy for humanity. That everything is like a band-aid on a mortal condition. It all falls short. And only the crucified Christ meets us in our ultimate need. In a battle with strength and wisdom of the world, only the foolishness and the weakness of God in the word of the cross will remain. So to prove this point, Paul moves into telling the Corinthians, look at who you were. Look at your calling. If you look with me at verses 26 through 29. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standard. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So Paul's showing us that God isn't, isn't a talent scout. He's not going out like the guys in the NFL draft looking for players with potential who might show strength, who might show speed or an ability. No, God didn't choose those who were strong, rich, noble in the eyes, in the eyes of the world. See, there can be no boasting before God because He especially states that He has chosen those of low esteem and that we need God. I mean, isn't this the message of Scripture across the board? I mean, if you think about it, going back into Genesis, God chose Jacob instead of Esau. He chose the younger brother instead of the older brother. God chose J, uh, Joseph, who was a spoiled it, it, before all of his older brothers. But God came to Moses, as we talked about this morning. God came to Moses. Moses was a killer. Moses didn't want to go. He was an unwilling servant. He says that he was a poor speaker. And yet God chose to bring his people out of, it, out of Egypt through Moses. Think about the, the nation of Israel. It was small. It was weak. It was insignificant. It was in bondage and slavery. And yet God chose to take them out for His great love. Think about David. Remember when Samuel came to anoint the new king? And all the brothers came out and they paraded before Samuel. And he, and he thought that they were going to be it. But there was one that was missing. He had to stop everything. They needed to go find David. He was out in the pasture. And they needed to bring him in. We could think about the apostles. They were fishermen. And Paul tells us we could think about ourselves. Ultimately, we see God acting in weakness throughout Scripture. But if we want to think about weakness, let's think about Bethlehem. Let's think about the manger where the Savior of the world came, put on flesh. There wasn't even room for Him in an inn. Let's think about his modest ministry that people continued to walk away from. They continued to reject him and deny him. Think about him walking up the hill with the cross on his back. Being killed by those he came to save. 
He died looking like a rebel, a social nobody, humiliated, rejected, alone, crushed, and cursed by God. See, the world looks at that and sees a Jewish man and nobody on a cross. But believers see the Son of God coming to rescue His people. Where the world sees at best a misunderstanding and at worst a villain. Believers see the fixed plan of God from from all eternity past to send a Son, Jesus, who is the only righteous one who ever lived, and yet He died as a villain. Where the world sees something gross, disgusting, and gruesome, believers see something amazing, beautiful act of sacrificial love, more beautiful than we could ever imagine. See, in the humiliation of Jesus Christ, we see the power of God coming to destroy sin, coming to destroy death, coming to destroy the power of this world over His people. See, in verse 30, Paul, Paul shows us a little bit of what this looks like. He says that Jesus Christ came to us and offered us righteousness. That the cross had the power to change our verdict. That when we sinned, we stood before God unrighteous, Dirty, like when we talked about in Zechariah 3 with the high priest who came before God with dirty clothes and Satan stood uh, saying, he's, he's dirty. He's dirty. He should be condemned. But God commanded the angel to take the dirty garments off and provide him with a new garment. That's what Jesus did for us in his death on the cross. We are saved because Jesus was righteous. We are given clean of help we are both that god can be both just and the justifier of sinful people we see that the power of the cross provides power for a changed direction and purpose in sanctification that sanctification was earned by jesus christ and that our nature has been changed so we might grow through the power of the holy spirit that we might ever grow to be more like Him and desire what He desires as He works His image through us. We see, thirdly, that the power of the cross changed our identity. That before we were in the slave market to sin and to self, but Jesus came and redeemed us from that. That He changed our allegiance from ourselves and from our sin to Jesus Christ. That our identity is no longer wrapped up in sin. That we're not ultimately a sinner. But ultimately, our, our identity looks to Jesus Christ in His tether, in His finished work on the cross on our behalf. That He is the vine and we are the branches. That He is the head and we are members of the body. See, Paul shows us that Jesus Christ has come. And that the word of the cross is everything to us. So that our only boast might be in Jesus Christ and His finished work there on the cross. As believers, may we be mindful that we should never be ashamed of the word of the cross. May we remember that though the world hates it, casts doubt on it, the gospel is the only remedy for man's deepest need. And that God offers this freely as a gift to all who believe. And we as the people of God learn to rest in the finished work, in the word of the cross. 
Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.